Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, doubling down, Surrey launches a second court challenge to stop the police transition. Mayor Brenda Locke joins us. Plus, following BC's lead, the federal government promises to crack down on people who profit from short-term rentals. Will it have any effect? And while some cities may have accepted bus rapid transit and the dedicated lanes they require, others have said no for that reason. We look at the challenges of losing traffic lanes to buses. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's begin the show on our favorite political soap opera, the Surrey Policing Saga. Just when you thought it was over, and just when you thought the province had brought down the legislative hammer, just when you thought this has gone on for way too long, today the city of Surrey doubled down. Mayor Brenda Locke said a petition was filed in BC Supreme Court uh, today challenging the constitutionality of recent amendments to the uh, province's police act. The legal move comes days after the BC government suspended the Surrey Police Board and appointed an administrator to move the transition to a civic police force along. Joining me now to discuss this latest legal maneuver to stop the policing transition is Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. Ms. Locke, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. So why is the city of Surrey mounting a constitutional challenge to the province's uh, appointment of an administrator? Well, I think that it's, it's not just the appointment of the administrator. It is to say that the legislation that the... Um, province did in September was going to be um, harmful, uh, mostly uh, financially, to the city of Surrey. And uh, so we're taking this on because it's important that Surrey residents and Surrey voters deserve to have their voices heard. They weren't heard. Uh, how successful do you think you're going to be? Uh, I mean, one would argue, and I'm no lawyer, but uh, the province has the law behind them. The legislation is there. That uh, this is a, a um, you know a, a bit of a, a late in the game um, throw to the end zone, hoping something comes of it. Would you would you do, would you describe it as that? Many people would. Well, you know what, I I don't agree with that at all. Um, the the reality is that the minister obviously did not have the jurisdiction to do what he did, and so he had to change the legislation. But I think more importantly than that, the province said to us and has said to Surrey consistently over the last eight months, and even before that, this is Surrey's decision to make. The premier said that many, many times in writing and verbally, the Soljan said that many, many times in writing verbally, and even the previous um, premier, Mr. Horrigan, said that. He called it a hornet's nest, and he's absolutely right. And this, this uh, solicitor and the premier are allowing the hornet's nest to get bigger and bigger. And so, um, absolutely, I think uh, we ran on a premise that we were going to change this, we knew full well we were going to change the uh, the uh, direction and stay with the RCMP. They knew that's what the voter voted for. And so we will not allow the Surrey voter to be disenfranchised. If the city moved ahead with the Surrey Police Service, which the, the minister has mandated, can you give me a sense of the impact on city finances and the impact on Surrey taxpayers? Well, we know that the cost for the Surrey Police Service is extraordinary. We have presented some of the costs, but we don't have all of the costs because 
there is no plan. There is no plan moving forward. But we know that over 10 years, it's going to be a minimum, and that is a minimum, of $464 million. This is a generational decision. This isn't a decision for today. This is a decision forever that will impact our our taxpayer. And, and we just, quite frankly, um, can't believe that the NDP would impose this tax, this police tax, on our city. And so uh, we are going to continue to uh, make sure that um, the city understands that residents, that taxpayers understand that the NDP is imposing a significant, probably 20% or more, a double-digit tax increase on, on our residents. And as I said, not just for today, not just for 2024, but forever. So when you say a 20% property tax increase, you're talking for next year and many years moving forward? I just want to clarify that. Well, we're talking significant tax, and I can't tell you exactly because they haven't provided us with the budget or the plan. But what we do know is the cost of an operational um, municipal police force is going to be significantly more. We estimate it will be much more than $30 million more per, um, per year. And that is not inclusive of things like two-person cars, two-man two cars, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's not inclusive of any uh, additional uh, capital costs, and we know there are significant capital costs. It isn't inclusive of things like risk management, and people sometimes don't think about that. But Surrey is um, under contract policing. All of the risks, so all of the the legal implications of of our uh, policing, and there are lots of them, uh, are all borne by the city directly. And that could be as high as as $20 million a year just on risk. So that's somebody suing the police department over, let's say, an arrest or whatever it may be. These are legal legal issues that generally arise, and now the city is going to be held, at the very least, we'll have to defend the police department, as opposed to, prior to that, the RCMP would be the federal government. Yes, and, and of course, cities self-insure, so Mm -hmm. um, the the, uh, costs are direct. Um, in regards to capital costs, what isn't included? I just want to, you said the two-man cars. What are the things? IT. Okay. Um, yeah, IT is, is, is a biggie. And uh, they have talked about the cost of IT as being as high as $90 million or more. Um, there are all kinds of costs, facility costs. If it's, um, there will be a, an increase in the number of uh, members, so know that that's going to happen. There's going to be additional costs for training facilities because we also know that the JIBC does not do full training of officers, so there will have to be additional training facilities uh, in Surrey. The, the list is endless, and quite frankly, without a plan, uh, we can't even forecast some of that. But we do know um, some of those that are, that are in front of us. Does that include a gun range? Or that would that be a cost Surrey would have to bear as well? It absolutely could include a gun range. They have talked about uh, forty million dollars for a training facility. That's what um, that's what was uh, forecasted by the Surrey Police Service. But we know that that is quite shy of uh, what the costs are today for for uh, training facilities. 
And you only have to uh, look to other jurisdictions that are doing training facilities for police. It is uh, often more than more than uh, 90, 90 million. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke uh, today. Uh, earlier today, the city of Surrey filed a, a second petition to BC Supreme Court challenging some of the changes that were made uh, to the province's Police Act recently. Now, Mayor Locke, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the hiring of new police officers for the Surrey Police Service. Uh, you need a lot of officers. Uh, what types of impact will this hiring in your mind or is having on other municipalities in Metro Vancouver or even throughout British Columbia? Well, we've heard from some um, jurisdictions like New West who are saying that they are... So on So on the municipal side, the Surrey Police Service will be, without a doubt, hiring from other police services. And we do know that um, some areas, and New West has just recently made comment about that, that they have lost already... Um, too many of their members to Surrey Police Service. And we know that's happened in West Vancouver and other municipal police forces. So where else are they going to get constables? Uh, Surrey Police Service does not have enough frontline officers, not even close, and they haven't increased those numbers for some time. We know they have uh, um, white shirts, if you will, higher-ranked officers, um, but uh, we we know that they are unable to hire constable ranks. Uh, do you think the city has, or and you personally, um, have been respected in this process? I'm curious because the provincial government would say, look, we're, we're, we're trying to work with this city, but they're intransigent. They've taken us to court. It's not how you find a solution at the end of the day. Uh, how would you describe uh, the treatment of your the treatment of yourself and the city by the province? You know, um, I... Uh, I think it has been incredibly disrespectful the way the province has treated the city of Surrey and the taxpayer of Surrey. And, uh, you know, my relationship aside, it's irrelevant. Everybody knows um, the concerns around that. But I am so disappointed in how this government, this provincial government, has treated the residents of Surrey. And it's not just on the policing front. It's not just on the... We know that Surrey has been left behind on just about every priority you can think of. Our infrastructure is lacking. They're interfering on policing, but it's worse than that. We look at our portables in our schools. We look at portable washrooms at schools. I don't know another jurisdiction where kids go outside to a portable washroom facility in a trailer um, to use facilities. We're looking at now a portable um, pediatric ER at Surrey Memorial Hospital. We look at our uh, infrastructure like our social infrastructure. We do not have any close, anywhere near close to the number of, of uh, shelter beds and those kind of facilities in our city. We don't have the kind of public transportation that other jurisdictions have. Surrey has probably got north of uh, 600,000 people in it. We are going to be larger than Vancouver very quickly, but our resources are just not, um, and our infrastructure just does not coincide. You know, when you think of Surrey, we have more kids in portables than some school districts have in their whole district. 
it's quite incredible. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the argument from your critics? Say, look, you were part of that previous council that supported the SPS. And for you to now oppose it is hypocritical, number one. Number two, there are many who say, look, this has gone on long enough. The province has made a decision. Brenda Locke has put up a good fight. It's time to move on and move forward and find a solution and get SPS um, uh, fully, fully uh, up and running, uh, hiring people, moving forward at the end of the day, that you've put your time in, you've opposed it, you've made the argument, you've articulated this, that you don't need to go to this this route now in regards to constitutional uh, challenge. What do you say to that argument that just let's accept it, let's move forward, you've done your bit as mayor and, and you've spoken the, the, the opinions of, of many residents in that community and get on with it now with SPS? Well, I would say two things. First of all, they don't live in Surrey, and I know specifically who you're talking to on on at least one of those occasions. The Surrey taxpayers do not want to have double-digit tax increases. The Surrey residents uh, know that they have had safe and effective policing in this city, and we've seen our um, that that uh, time and time again with every time we get our uh, reports back from the RCMP. We know we have uh, good policing in this city. This has never, ever been about um, public safety in, in our city. I think I would also say to them that it's, it's important to know that Surrey residents voted to keep the RCMP in Surrey. They voted on that because the Premier, the now Premier, and the then and now Solicitor General said time and time again, it's up to Surrey. We have made our decision. It's uh, Surrey has voted on it several times, and just because somebody has a philosophical um, reason for wanting to see a provincial police, they can do it in another city, not ours. We are not looking to change our police in Surrey. If somebody uh, wants to do that who lives in Burnaby, let them go and do it in Burnaby. But we're not doing it in Surrey. Brenda, my final question to you. If if this moves forward in regards to you know, the, the, the province saying, no, you're moving forward, and if there is a double-digit increase, property tax increase, and I know every city sends out a notice to taxpayers as to what uh, mm-hmm. the, the property tax increase looks like and where tax dollars at City Hall go every year. Every municipality in Metro Vancouver does that. What line, what are you going to call the line item in regards to policing, in regards to double-digit? I'm just curious, are you oh, actually going to call it the NDP policing tax, or...? Jazz, it's going to be in 16-point red on the tax form, and it's going to be the Surrey NDP police tax. It will be bold and loud and proud, and they are wear it. Every one of the MLAs in Surrey, anyone, every one of the NDP MLAs in Surrey that have chosen not to stand up for the residents for their tax implications will wear it. We will make absolutely sure that the taxpayer knows uh, what is happening to our city. This is a NDP imposed uh, tax. This is an NDP police force. Mayor Locke, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Bye now. Joining me now is our contributor, Jerry Mayor Judson. Talk a little bit about mental health. Absolutely. We give a lot, and for good reason, we give a lot of lip service. Of course, mental health is as important as your physical health. Mm-hmm. And we need, you know, mental health care. And we've come a long way in terms of access and talking about it. And it's so good we're talking about it. 
But functionally, how easy is it in British Columbia to access mental health care or to access medication in a reasonable fashion, right? And Mm -hmm. especially, this is kind of apropos of a report earlier this month from the Mood Disorders Society of Canada. And it says that medications for mental health concerns are not very often publicly funded and especially new ones that come out that get approved. It takes two and a half years on average to get public funding, say from Pharmacare, like we have here, to be listed under those medications where you can get some assistance. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's a nightmare. Um, Continuity (laughs) of care is a nightmare when you're dealing with mental health concerns. And uh, I talked to Al Raimundo, and they are somebody with lived experience in navigating the system. And their experience actually began when they were very young. My experience dealing with depression and other mental health concerns started from when I was very young. It took me to a point where I was feeling suicidal. I was feeling like my life wasn't worth living anymore because I didn't understand why I was struggling so much and found myself after a suicide attempt in the hospital. And all of a sudden, people were telling me that what I was dealing with was called depression and I wasn't the only one and there was hope out there. And it was a very sudden realization because up until that point, I hadn't, I didn't have the language and I didn't understand that it wasn't like a personal failing, that it was something that was an illness that so many people struggle with. From there, the, I would love to tell you accessing help was easy, but it wasn't. It was a lot of wait lists and a lot of retelling the same story just to be referred to somebody else to then retell the same story. And it takes a lot of energy for people to ask for help in the first place. And then the process of getting help is not easy. Access to things like medication, that was very, very difficult. It was a lot of assessments. And then as I moved around the country, there were other, like the assessments that were in Ontario weren't valid anymore. So I could no longer access my medication and I had to start all over. When you were going through in the first part of your story, were were you primarily living in British Columbia for that? I first started, started struggling with my mental health when I was living in Ontario. Five years ago, I moved to British Columbia and I started struggling with my mental health for different reasons. Like I was diagnosed with cancer a couple years ago. And so I was struggling with my mental health in relation to the cancer diagnosis. And I would say the experience has been consistently just bad everywhere. And I had diagnoses in Ontario that did not count in British Columbia. And in order to access the same medication, I had to be reassessed and go through the same thing again, especially when you consider we don't have a lot of energy on our bad days as people with lived experience. Like it was a lot of energy to invest just to continue receiving the same level of care that I've been receiving previously. And then in terms of accessing your medication, when you do go through, get the diagnosis and the doctor says, okay, here's your medication. I understand that you had, there were financial barriers to accessing that medication for you as well. There were times when I would be kind of choosing between paying for my rent that month or paying for my mental health medication. And the best medication that works the best, that has the best outcomes, were not ones that were often covered by a public drug plan, as well as oftentimes not covered by my works drug plan. And so there were times where I had to make really, really hard decisions about like, am I going to pay my rent on time or I'm going to build this medication? And that just really shouldn't happen. If you could change something, anything, multiple things about the way that people who are struggling access help, care, and these medications, what would that be? First of all, I just think the medication should be covered. 
100% for everybody. We want people to have access to medication as a part of their mental health care plan. It shouldn't be all this extra work to be able to access part of your health care, particularly when you're thinking of people with mental health issues. One of the biggest lies the mental health issue tells you is that you're not worth it. Mm -hmm. And having to go through all of these extra steps to get what should be basic care covered is reinforcing this idea that you're not worth it. I think the process of getting assessed to access some of these medications should be easier to access. It took me um, almost upwards of a year to get an ADHD diagnosis when I had an ADHD diagnosis in Ontario that they just didn't want to look at. Oh my God. So I had to go off my ADHD medication for a year to be able to re get re-diagnosed and get put on the exact same medication. That, that sucks for me and it sucks for other folks who don't have the medical literacy that I have or the ability to advocate for themselves. Those are, those are two things. It just it needs to be easier to get diagnosed. And then once you have decided that medication is part of the plan that you want to take care of yourself, then you should be able to access the best medication for whatever you're going through for free. In closing here, just to share one last story. The last maybe four or five times I went to go pick up uh, my medication from my local pharmacy, I heard people being told the total of their medication and leaving it behind. Oh, my God. And just being able, like, I can't access this. And so there are systems in place. You know, Pharmacare is out there. And I just ask questions about, like, why do not more people know about that? Like, why is that happening? But it's been so consistent and so many times I've been to the pharmacy in the last year where people are just leaving medication behind because they can't afford it. We spend so much time talking about mental health issues, mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the, the practical sort of reality in accessing help and medication. Nightmare. Nightmare. Absolute <laughs> nightmare. That's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. But I, and, and that's, I think, that is actually the best way in regards to, to what um, Al was describing there because um, – and I don't know how we get around that beyond just continuing to lobby the government more and more because it shouldn't be that difficult. It shouldn't be that difficult for people already to disadvantage. And I get so worked up about, of course, like my background is in psychology. And oh. I think that it's just and I also have lived experience in trying to access medication. And it's just absolutely awful all the time. But it's important that we keep talking about it and telling stories about how awful it is. So, maybe so is, how much of it in your mind is it? Lack of tax dollars going towards this, or is it just bureaucracy? I think it's bureaucracy and lack of public information because it's very, if you know, you know, and accessing that information and how to navigate the system when you're kind of already at a disadvantage. Also, under everything is underfunded. Everything I think healthcare wise is underfunded, but uh, and maybe the treatment of mental health care access as actual healthcare as opposed to a fun extra because it's not, it's essential for people to function properly, even or like Al when they're dealing with concurrent physical and mental health diagnoses mm-hmm. it's just there needs to it just needs to be easier it just needs to be more straightforward I get, I get where you're coming from thank you thank you finance minister christia freeland will announce a tax changes designed to curb the use of airbnb and other short-term rental services in regions of canada where those platforms uh, are restricted. The measure will be part of Freeland's fall economic statement, which will be uh, tomorrow. The government will prohibit property owners from deducting expenses on short-term rentals in areas where those services are already limited by other levels of government. We are told the tax change would uh, come in uh, come into effect 
on January 1st. Now, as we all know here in BC, the provincial government's new rules and the rules that they introduced just recently means a person who operates a short-term rental must also live in the house or suite and they are limited to re- uh, renting out just one suite within the house or bedroom or bedrooms uh, in the suite. Now, the province is also going to provide municipalities with resources to crack down on operators that don't operate according to municipal bylaws. So the uh, the penalties themselves are up to $3,000 per day. And uh, as Housing Minister Ravi Kalo, who's been on this show many times, has said, they're also going to be collecting data uh, in regards to where those rentals are, uh, and those that data will all be provided to the variety various municipalities uh, throughout uh, British Columbia. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about this federal uh, pending federal legislation is Ron Butler, a good friend of this show. He's a mortgage broker at Butler Mortgages. Ron, thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So, uh, in your mind, you obviously watch the market very close. What do you think this will do to the market? Well, it's obviously regional, uh, British Columbia having the legislation that's most impactful right now, although that's probably going to change municipally. We're seeing Toronto make this move uh, in terms of the city of Toronto. So here's what it is. People are going to think twice about Airbnb. You know, if you're planning on making a purchase, if you've gone out and you have a pre-construction condo booked uh, that's coming on stream and you'd always hope that it would become your Airbnb source of revenue, it's done. It's done. Uh, you know, this is the beginning of the end for Airbnb in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you, you're obviously uh, from the Vancouver area. You've mentioned that a few times on this show. So uh, we have a colleague here uh, on this show, one of our colleagues, Jerry Mir Judson, a contributor to the show, saying that uh, that around the Metrotown area, anecdotally, you're seeing a lot more suites our condos up for sale now. You're seeing similar reports out of Victoria. Do you see something like that happening then where people are just saying, I'm throwing in the towel, we're done, we're out, uh, I'm going to move on. This does, just doesn't work anymore. Whoever's offering those suites for sale right now is the smart money. I mean, if you think you're going to find a way out of this, if you think you're going to dodge it, if you think you're going to uh, find some cute way to avoid uh, the restrictions, well, when... CRA catches up with you, which they somehow always do. Eventually, <laughs> they got you. And for anybody who's been through that experience, no one wants it, I assure you. And, yeah, it, it's, it's the smart money is selling today, and we'll just see more and more of it. Mm. Um Overall in the market now, this is just one more wrinkle uh, and there's a lot of folks who are unhappy with the short-term rental legislation here in British Columbia. I'm sure federally tomorrow you'll you'll hear a lot of complaints as well. In the lower mainland area here, uh, there's about a shortage of about 1,500 hotel rooms. So the justification has always been we don't have enough hotel space because of land costs. We need short-term rentals. I don't think it's that different probably from Toronto, maybe a little different, but not that different. Uh, How much of an impact do you see... just overall it having on major cities like Vancouver and Toronto? Uh, Toronto's surplus hotel rooms here. We mm. do have a surplus uh, in Toronto. Uh, but, you know, as I say, as you say, very familiar with Vancouver. It's been this sort of impossible pricing of land to develop additional hotels in the Vancouver area. Uh, although certainly out in the valley, there's probably a, a good amount to be had. That may change. I mean, uh, this could easily change. I mean, if you were a hotel, uh, considering the high cost of land, you would say, I don't want to do this because Airbnb has got a stronghold. Mm -hmm. So now that Airbnb and the short-term rentals are going away, things may change. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, let's uh, broaden out just for a moment here. Uh, in regards to the Bank of Canada, um, rates have not gone up in the last little while. What do you foresee in the next uh, you know, few months uh, heading into the new year? Well, based on last week's uh, good inflation uh, numbers, good CP, good numbers in the consumer report in the U.S., which were actually below expectations, below everybody's expectations, it's quite possible we've had the last uh, rate increase from the Bank of Canada. And if that is true, I'm not a forecaster, I can't say for certain, but if that is true, then the next eventuality are rate cuts. And now I can't predict to you how soon that will happen, but it's already had an impact on the bond market, Canadian bond market uh, for our securities here. And we're seeing some small declines in fixed rates. If that is true, we're probably going to see lower rates through the course of the winter. Hmm. Um, you mentioned this to me a few months ago, and, and I want to uh, make sure I had this right. 45% of all mortgages in this country are set for renewal in either 2024 or 2025. Is that, is, am I correct there? That's about the right number because 2025 is the uh, lodestone of renewals in this country. So, yeah, it's going to be huge. What do you see? I mean, in regards to just political pressure, I know the technically the prime minister's the, the, the Bank of Canada is independent from from the federal government or the provincial governments, even though you know pro, uh, the premiers do happen to send letters to the Bank of Canada. But what do you see happening here? I mean, there, we the issue of affordability is constant here in Vancouver, and I'm sure in Toronto. Um, what do you see here happening with with a we have a provincial election coming, a federal election coming, technically for 2025? I mean, what do you see in regards to the the political climate, even just the fiscal climate in this country, with that stat alone, with 45% of mortgage renewals coming up in 2024 and 2025? Well, potentially the saddest truth is a severe recession cures the inflation problem and rates fall. So it's therefore, it's very, very difficult to say for certain that 2025 will be a disastrous year. If we're in a steep recession in 2024, you can bet the rates will come down and it will no longer be as critical a problem because you're quite right. Uh, this high rate environment, if it continues for another two years, it's not survivable for federal governments. I don't think anybody blames the EV government on high rates. Uh, so my suggestion is they'll blame the federal government and uh, it's a government killer. Yeah. Uh, Ron, do you still remain an optimist? I mean, you just hear all the stories. I'm very curious. Are you still an optimist with this market? Uh, For the market, not so much right now. I mean, you're allowed to be a short-term pessimist, uh, you know, in the face of, you know, just sort of compelling data, uh, both about the recession, about this particular move for to deal with short-term rentals. Like, I legitimately feel some sympathy for short-term rental owners. This is a kind of a utter disaster. I mean, this is a government actually knowingly pulling the rug out from under you. Uh, That said... A lot of uh, Airbnbs and short-term rentals are operated as an illegal hotel room. So mm-hmm. ultimately, people should understand they took a risk and capitalism comes around to bite you. Uh, but right now, I, I think those people are under a lot of pressure. Uh, and it's one bit of good news. Those condos uh, and some of those townhouses will have to be sold. Yeah. I mean, I, I know we vilify developers. And, you know, if somebody has renting, you know, say, eight uh, condominiums, and then using the using those that they've rented uh, as Airbnbs and making a profit on each. That I understand. 
But if you have a mom and pop investor and they wish to use, uh, you know, Airbnb their property and they're not breaking any rules, I don't have a problem with that. That's a challenge that I have. The average mom and pop investor has even been vilified in this country that you can't even buy a second property if you're able to. And that's, I think, the broader challenges of affordability. We shouldn't be vilifying some of these people who, you know, are generally putting stuff out in the rental pool or in the short-term rental pool. You know, I think we can uh, draw the line at the short-term rental pool. What we should do and we must do is make uh, long-term rental more attractive by fixing some of the problems with the provincial organizations and the provincial rental rules that make those long-term rentals dangerous. If you get a bad tenant, they become an unmanageable, serious problem. So that's the right move. The right move is to fix landlord and tenant rules, to fix the organizations that work with the landlords and tenants so that it's efficient, effective, and sensible. And then that same mom and pop who felt that they were driven to use short-term rental can provide long-term accommodation to families and others who want to have uh, a rent a rental situation for a longer term. Ron, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Over the weekend, I was reading the Washington Post, and there was a particular article that caught my attention. Uh, what it basically said was that Earth passed a feared global warming milestone. Uh, that was on Friday, especially Friday. Um, the, it was the first day global warmth crossed a threshold, uh, only briefly, but one that climate scientists have warned could have uh, a huge impact uh, on our planet. Preliminary data shows that global temperature averaged more than 2 degrees Celsius above a historic norm from the time before humans started consuming fossil fuels and emitting uh, emitting uh, greenhouse gases. Now, this uh, that does not mean efforts to limit global warming have failed completely, but it does say just for a moment we surpassed that two-degree benchmark. And, of course, it has to surpass that two-degree benchmark for months and years at a time before science scientists consider it breached, but the fact that we hit two degrees on Friday was an important moment. It is a striking reminder that the climate uh, is moving into uncharted territory. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, what transpired on Friday, but also the broader conversation around climate change, we're joined now by Andrew Weaver. He's a professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria and a former leader of the BC Green Party. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jazz. Always a pleasure. Uh, your thoughts, first and foremost, on this article and uh, what uh, occurred on Friday? Yeah, it was the, um, the European Union, uh, Copernicus, which was basically their um, uh, European Union science organization for meteorology, announced that the global average temperature broke two degrees uh, for the first time. And, uh, you know, this number has embedded, embodied, embedded itself in people's minds as a number we've been trying to avoid as a maximum amount under Paris Agreement and things like that. Now, of course, this is a one day, mm-hmm. but, but what we also know is that July 2023 was the warmest year in history uh, since recordings have been happening. August 2023, warmest year since we've been recording data. September 2023, sorry, warmest month. Mm -hmm. September, warmest month. October 2023, warmest month since we've been recording data. And it would basically require uh, a miracle for us not to set a new record this year as 2023 being the warmest year in the historical record. Uh, So, you know, as we, as people continue on with their daily activities, the climate system is continuing to respond to con- ongoing and past emissions and will continue to get much, much warmer. And it really is striking to see uh, the kind of gutter dialogue that we're seeing at, uh, in our, at the political level about 
what we're going to do about it here in Canada, while the rest of the world is actually moving forward with, with, with uh, aggressive policies, um, we start to see now at the national scene in Canada kind of gutter, gutter pendulum politics coming out. Um, while meanwhile, the U.S. is moving forward, admit, uh, U.K.'s emissions are more than 45% below 1990 levels. Canada, 21% above, and looking like all the good work that's been done, putting bringing together the recent climate plan is... is May go by the wayside. Just very sad. The announcement made by Prime Minister Trudeau in regards to giving folks in Atlantic Canada a break does speak to, however, the ability, the inability of some folks uh, to 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 pay the bills. I mean, sometimes policy can't get ahead; it shouldn't get ahead of people and affordability uh, and making a living and getting ahead uh, a little bit. Do you think? Uh, that was still a mistake, even though some would argue, look, it's hitting people in the pocketbook. You've got to be cognizant of that. Do you think that was a mistake on Mr. Trudeau's part? Absolutely, it was a mistake. You, um, uh, and it was the biggest mistake was um, introducing the policy, which took blindsided everyone, came out of nowhere, and no one understood the rationale for uh, I mean, you can go into the details and realize that there's a lot of people in, in eastern Canada still using heating oil, but... That's not actually the way to move forward. The reason why you put a price on emissions is to actually get, send a signal to the market to incentivize the transition to low-carbon emitting systems. The way you deal with the, 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 the heating oil or the average person not being able to make ends meet is through the dividend you get. Like, this is what happened with the, under Gordon Campbell initially. It was, it was world-leading. Um, back in 2008, 2009, where we introduced in BC long before the federal government did, under the BC Liberal government, a carbon price that increased with time. The money came in, and as it came in, income tax uh, were reduced, uh, and a dividend check went out. And so, you know, the NDP government have decided that more, which is appropriate, that rather than lowering the income taxes, maybe we'll give a bigger dividend check, and, and the same federally. So, so the way you deal with this is in, in this fee and dividend system is you keep the tax in place, but you give people on a, a, a back money that comes in from the tax. And that actually means that the average person will be way ahead of the game, but the, and, the, and, and whereas those who don't want to do anything will pay more. So what that says, for example, is if you want to go and buy a, you know, a gas-guzzling Maserati, we're not going to you know, take the big stick approach and say no, but we're going to say you have a, there's a pollution cost associated with that. So you're going to pay a bit more with the gas. Mm-hmm. And if you choose to, you know, buy, ride your bike or buy an EV, and we don't have to go down the economics of that, you're not going to pay the carbon tax. But we're going to bring in money from the carbon tax, and we're going to give it back to you because uh, we're not going to shock this, the economy. We're not going to, uh, you know, take the money in and just, you know, build our favorite dreams to ourselves. We're going to give it back to you through a dividend that's income tested. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you protect low-income people by giving back the dividend, and those people who typically are wealthy or paying more tax are, are, are not getting the dividend back. So it's good, fisc- frankly, it's good fiscal conservative policy. And to see the cynicism embodied in Mr. Polyev, who literally has no ideas on the climate file, literally all his campaign is tax the tax. Well, maybe he should be talking to the BC NDP about how that played out for them in 2009. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the reason why the BC Liberals won an election that no one expected them to win. So uh, moving forward, though, Mr. Polyev's politics is having an impact. He's doing very well in the polls. And it's interesting, as you say, the NDP at that time in 2008 said they were going to axe the tax. They lost the election. Now they're defending the carbon tax. Yet Kevin Falcon, the leader of the BC United, former BC Liberals, sat in, 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 in this studio with me. And he says if Mr. Polyev axes the tax on a federal level, he, if elected, would axe the tax provincially. That's how much things have turned and gone upside down in regards to politics. Do you worry, though, that, that, that we've hit a wall that, that in regards to putting – I understand putting a price on carbon, and, and, and I would argue that's the right way to go. But do you think somewhere along the way you've hit the wall of politics and saying, look, the, the, the average person is not buying it anymore and it isn't changing behavior? And, no, and, what, what, we, what the wall we've hit, Jazz, is not the politics. It's the cynical – self-interested politicians who actually don't care about governing for the collective. They Mm -hmm. care about sound bites and messages that they can anger their base uh, to get them riled up so that they can get in power. They actually don't have any ideas. They just say what they're doing we don't like. And frankly, I have never in my life voted for anyone who says, vote for me because I don't like them because you don't know what they're going to do. And on the climate file, I can say for the first time in Canadian history, Canada has now reclaimed leadership on the global warming file through the introduction of their Clean Canada plan, which mirrored what we did in BC, which BC is also highly regarded. And they received a, you know, an award from, from what we received in BC, an award from the COP, and other awards for that. These are plans that have been well-tested that are actually drivers of prosperity in the economy by recognizing that leaders in the innovation to deal with this challenge, like we can all stick our heads in the ground and pretend global warming is not happening. The rest of the world is moving on, recognizing that every environmental challenge can be seen through the lens of the opportunity it creates for innovation and prosperity as you try to address that challenge. We just like take a Trumpian view that, oh, uh, what are we going to do? Nothing. So let's continue to do more of the same while people transition and then we'll be sell- selling our stuff to nobody because nobody wants it. So it's, it's actually reckless fiscal policy. It's reckless long-term planning. It's not good public policy. It's not actually aiming to help any, any people. It's all about cynical politicians with no ideas seeing how they can anger their base so that you vote them in so they can literally do more of the same. That is nothing that they have done. And that is true with Kevin Falcon's uh, opposition right now. Zero ideas on climate. And Pierre Polyev, zero ideas on climate. And frankly, just have to look at last summer and ask the average Canadian about forest fires to know that they, they and 80 percent of Canadians, they want government to take action. So frankly, I think Mr. Polyev has peaked far too early. I think he's going to have a come up and up and, and that Canadians will see that the federal conservative party for what it is. It's an irresponsible party that has no ideas on the climate file, that all they're really trying to do is scare you uh, so that you vote for them so that they can get in power, so that they can represent their interests and not our collective interests. Based on what Justin... strong language, I know, but (laughs) but I've I've seen this all before, Jazz. We went through this in 2009 with the NDP, and it angered uh, British Columbians uh, 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 very much so because of the cynicism embodied in that approach. Yeah. And Mr. Polyev will pay for this. But do you think, uh, Justin Trudeau, um, who you endorsed, I believe you were actually out in Richmond, you came out to one of his yeah. events, I recall, in the last election campaign. Yeah. Would you do the same again based on what he did, in, uh, based on his announcement in Eastern Canada? 
So the, the plan that exists in Canada is still far-reaching. It's economy-wide. It's mm-hmm. progressive in terms of its, it, its thought about various things. It's involving not just the oil and gas sector. It's involving active transportation, electrification of public transit. It's involved in, like we've seen announcement after announcement of, rec- of recognition, that there's a strategic plan, there's a strategic uh, pr- approach to capitalizing on, on the opportunities there. We had an announcement in B.C., of a new battery facility with Trudeau and, and Adrian Dix. They've had a couple in Ontario. This is the future. Mm-hmm. Canada and the U.S. And the U.S. actually are, I mean, Joe Biden is, is, is a, bit of a, a bit of a superstar in terms of messaging. You know, the U.S. doesn't actually have a plan called a climate plan. They have something called the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's be clear. It's a climate plan. It's very similar to Canada's Clean, Clean Canada plan or BC's Clean BC plan. It's one that recognizes you focus on prosperity being local. You focus on, 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 on recognizing that we have in North America every critical mineral you want. There are ways to get access to those minerals in more sustainable ways that actually save corporations doing it money in partnership with indigenous communities in rural areas, which allows economic reconciliation for indigenous communities as well. I mean, there's a win-win-win-win potential here if you have politicians, decision makers, able to think outside of the box for the collective instead of for their own cynical political ambition to gain power. And that's what, you know, Jazz, I spent seven and a half years in the legislature. That's the thing that sickened me most about politics is that you're not one of those people. You were there with me. Mm-hmm. Is people who do it for themselves, not for the collective. And there's far too many of them in yeah. politics. And I think that's why we're seeing this reaction. That, I would definitely agree with. Amen to that. Andrew, as always, <laughs> thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Always love your show, Jess. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.